The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. And now, the man who takes the BS out of BS, Bill Spohn. Hey, glad you're back. Back to listen to the Building HVAC Science Podcast, which is our goal to help create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping the two groups of professions work together with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. The topic of how to manage and improve indoor air quality comes up a lot lately. With all this interest come the offer of many solutions and devices. I was doing air quotes there with solutions. Now, do you wish you could learn the backstory of and maybe the technology inside some of these devices? Never wonder about the international perspectives on this topic of IQ. Well, the Building HVAC Science Podcast is pleased to welcome our very first guest from another continent. We ask you to join us today and listen in as Clive Mitchell, better known as Big Clive, gives us his perspectives on the spectrum of IEQ improvement products from beneficial ones to downright dangerous. Now, if you've not seen his YouTube channel, you need to stop. I'm even saying stop right now and look up BigClive.com, C-L-I-V-E for Clive, on YouTube. He's published thousands of dissection-like teardown videos on a wide range of electrical and electronic products over the last 13 years. Now, Clive really tends to focus on cheap junk teardowns, gets suggestions from his listeners, his viewers, his Patreon subscribers, and he publishes a video about every two days. But he also finds time to ponder such challenging societal questions like, does pineapple belong on pizza? And what happens when you redistill Jägermeister? He calls his channel on YouTube the Trashiest Electronics Channel. And based on feedback, the bulk of his 800,000 subscribers seem to agree. Big Clive lives on the Isle of Man. We learned a little bit about that on the episode. It's a 221-square-mile island with a population of over 83,000 people located in the Irish Sea. So tune in and let's listen to Big Clive regale us with his knowledge of IEQ devices and some of the dissections he's done of them. This is interesting. Today, I'm pleased to have Clive Mitchell on board with us today to have a little chat about IEQ devices. You may also know Clive as Big Clive. Good evening there, or night there, Clive. Good evening, Bill. It's evening. It's about 9 p.m. So for people that aren't familiar with Clive or Big Clive, why don't you give us a little background? The background Electrician to trade, diverse career, but ended up somehow with a YouTube channel where I basically just do what I always did at my bench, taking stuff to bits and reverse engineering it. And it turns out that that was a really popular thing in YouTube. So ultimately, most famous these days for my YouTube channel, BigClive.com. How long have you been running that channel? Oh, the channel started as a backup. It was designed, the channel was originally to have some videos associated with pages in my website, bigclive.com. But when I moved over here to the Isle of Man to look after my mum a long time ago, wanted to set up my bench. So I just basically, because I liked watching technical channels on YouTube, I thought it'd be a good idea to just basically set the new bench up with a camera in position and record it. I just did it just for fun. When I take stuff off the internet, I like to put it back up onto the internet as well, give other people what I take, I give back. And it just turned out to be really popular. So it's a good few years. 
for those of the people that may be geographically challenged, can you tell us where the Isle of Man is? The Isle of Man is between the UK and Ireland. It's right in the middle of the Irish Sea. It's just a little dot in the map. Wow. So you're my first international guest? Oh, right. Okay. You chose a very exotic destination. <laughs> I did. <laughs> One could say that of you too. <laughs> Perhaps not. You do this dissection or teardowns, and I don't know if these are your words or the words of someone who wrote an article, the trashiest electronics channel on YouTube. That's me that wrote that, yeah. You wrote that, yeah. I deliberately go for the trashy, dangerous products. People keep saying, why don't you take apart interesting, like, well-designed products? And the answer is because the cheap junk from China is much more interesting because of the they've cut corners and they've made one component do several things. It's much more interesting taking that stuff apart. It's more intriguing. It's more of a puzzle than the traditional textbook stuff. Have you ever learned anything surprising, like surprising good when you've taken something apart? Yes. I've found some really interesting and novel circuitry that I've never seen before. So some of the cheapest stuff is also, as I say, the most educational in that regard. You realize that the person that designed it, even though it was done down to a price, the person that designed it really knew what they were doing. About how many of these teardowns have you done? I do one every two days. So I've got hundreds of those videos. I can tell you, I think it's actually thousands of videos I've got up on YouTube. Yeah. I'm not sure where I first discovered you, but YouTube prompted me to look at your channel because I look at these kind of things too myself. And I'd been following you for a while. And then I saw you were going to be on one of our sort of our comrades, HVAC. Uh, overtime. HVAC Overtime here shortly. And I thought, oh, what the heck? He went on their podcast. Maybe he'll come on mine. And I'm thrilled and flattered to have you here. So on the subject of the one of the most well-designed things I took apart, one of the most impressive was a Japanese product. And it was a sharp plasma cluster unit, which is basically coming straight back into this sort of indoor air quality thing, because that is a massively selling thing in Japan. Almost every single house has one of these devices. And I've got my own thoughts on what they do and how they work. Okay, that's a little bit of a teaser there. Uh, can you share with us the thoughts on, first, why would someone put one of these in their houses? Is it societal conformance, or they really do work, or everyone's got one, they're popular? I think it's, in Sharp's case, I think it's down to extremely high-pressure marketing is basically their secret. But these things, they might not like me seeing it. But inside, when you actually analyze what the circuitry inside, it looks a bit like an ionizer, but it's really actually creating ozone, all the other things that go along with that. I'm pretty sure it probably does, as they claim. They specifically mention the hydroxyl radicals and because that's like a buzzword in air quality, apparently. But I think they're just being selective in the wording they use. But it puts, when you actually look at the inside of these units, if you take the module out and run it on your bench, you can see the little corona discharge. And I have to mention corona, not coronavirus, but the little plasma discharge, the little purple glow on the tips of all the needles. And that means it's producing everything. It's producing ozone. It's producing nitric oxide. It's producing their hydroxyl radicals. It's producing a whole medley of chemistry. But it is, as they often say, nature identical. It's exactly what is produced outdoors in, in the natural environment. And that would be the natural environment like a lightning storm or? Just daily, just out through exposure to ultraviolet energy, through rustling leaves, creating static charges through water movement, just atmospheric effects. These gases like ozone are always present there. Can I throw you some statistics about ozone? Yeah, please, please. Okay. In a cubic meter of air, 
that's roughly 39 inches cubed. There are about 10 septillion molecules of gas, right? What's the uh, exponent there? 10 septillion? 10 septillion, that's 10 trillion trillion, or one with 25 zeros after it. It's a really huge number. Of those, 78% are nitrogen, 21% are oxygen, and 1% covers everything else, including carbon dioxide, methane, neon, argon, krypton, xenon, hydrogen, helium, water vapor, nitric oxide, and ozone. It's just everything else is just thrown into that, including, I'm guessing, some of the more recent refrigerant gases. When you consider it, like NASA suggests that in the troposphere, which is the part of the atmosphere down on the ground where all the houses and trees and streets are, they estimate that in most parts of the world that aren't subject to high pollution, it's roughly 10 parts per billion of ozone. And you think, that's not an awful lot. But then when you consider how many molecules of air you breathe with every breath, it means that if you were in the middle of a desert island, in the middle of an ocean, you would be breathing literally 100 trillion in molecules of ozone with every single breath. It just puts things into perspective that because people are saying ozone is a terrible thing, it's unnatural, it shouldn't be there, go outdoors, and that is basically present in the air in quite significant levels. One of the downsides of ozone, and this is where indoor air quality does suffer, one of the downsides of ozone is it's very reactive, it's unstable. The difference between oxygen and ozone is that oxygen is two oxygen atoms connected together, and it's stable in that form. Ozone is three oxygen atoms connect together, and it wants to get rid of that third one because it's unstable. So that's why it's got that strong oxidizing effect. And it means that when you bring fresh air into the house, if the air isn't continually being moved into the house, if there's not a continuous stream of fresh air to replenish that, if it's a sealed building, then just a few of those elements of the air actually gradually either revert back to oxygen or they just lose that oxygen bond onto your furnishings or whatever and suddenly you've not got that element in the air anymore so it's actually missing the active components that may actually be instrumental in limiting the proliferation of mold bacteria viruses and other airborne stuff that is normally regulated in nature by the natural presence of ozone so just to really simplify, a little bit of ozone is okay? Natural levels are okay in this kind of scheme of thinking? Yes. MD who says that ozone is terrible should really talk to Mother Nature because I get the feeling that ultimately it's always been a part of the natural environment outdoors. So at low level, yes, I think they're safe. Round about the 10 parts to 50 parts per billion, they're okay indoors. In fact, they're positively needed indoors to actually emulate outdoor fresh air. So these plasma clusters, going back to the product that you mentioned there, what kind of levels do they generate? Do you have any clue on that? Trace levels. I have tried with my ozone meter. The only time I've been able to actually measure it, and I got a fairly decent reading, was when I put one of their modules inside a sealed container with the ozone meter. And then you could actually get a significant ozone reading off it. But one of the things they do, they produce it at very tiny trace level and they use big fans to just throw that air through it so it diffuses it into the room. So I would say that it actually does a pretty good job of emulating natural levels. It doesn't put out too much. Certainly not that you could smell, which you can smell ozone at something like, is it 100 parts per billion, but at 0.1 part per million? And it doesn't even remotely come near that. You can't smell it in the room, which is good. You shouldn't be able to smell ozone. 
in the smell of ozone, am I correct? It's like the smell you might get around a motor. It smells like bleach. It's a very distinct. The name ozone is actually based on a Greek word for smell because it's such a distinctive smell in such tiny quantities. Interesting. So we're going back to that one device. That's one of the better ones you've seen? It's one of the most heavily marketed. I'm not going to say it's particularly better. Okay. But it took off in Japan to the point that literally every public building has them. Every home has them. People have them in their cars. They're just absolutely everywhere. They sell so many of them. And they've been around since 2003 was when they released it. So basically speaking, Japan has been doing an ongoing test of basically adding back, perhaps you could call it the active components of air on an ongoing basis indoors. And it also seems to be very popular in India where they're very unscrupulous with their marketing. Loud adverts telling you that you're not going to get the coronavirus if you have a sharp plasma cluster, which is a bold statement, but also in a way a relatively justifiable statement because the presence of these active components, these cleaning components in the air, could actually be significant in actually preventing cross-infection between people in the same room. Interesting. Have you been following the happenings in the US with regard to this in terms of air quality devices? And I've been watching with interest the number of this basically crawled out the woodwork selling these sudden new devices. Everybody has cashed in on the COVID situation. And it's not just the air quality devices. You know the standard, uh, the UVC tubes, those quartz tubes that have that ghostly blue glow? On eBay right now, you can buy fake UVC lights. They're being sold as UVC, but they're just bright blue LEDs with absolutely no ultraviolet content at all. They're being sold at premium prices despite doing absolutely nothing. Have you torn any of those down? Oh, yes. One of them didn't just do nothing, but you could get an electric shock if you handled it while it was on. It was stunning. Can I ask if you got the shock? <laughs> no, I was wise to that. I know exactly what they do with their circuitry. Okay. One of the interesting things you do all the time, but like you say, you reverse engineer, but you sort of do it live. It almost seems like a cold take when you take something apart. It's just you running through it. There's nothing rehearsed. No, it's... I've always kept it very simple and it's usually raw. It's me actually discovering things because if you take something apart and then you, all the mystery is gone, you can't emulate that mystery, you that surprise when you take it apart again. So when I'm doing it, when I'm making the videos, the concept is that you guys are in the room with me watching as I take it apart and we all just discover it all together. This just gives it a more intimate feel. Now, you mentioned a little bit before, have, have you ever gotten any trouble that you'd like to talk about? Like a manufacturer coming back at you or is the cheaper quote-unquote junk that you deal with, there's no one who's watching? I have upset some manufacturers by taking their products apart and they got very ratty about it. One tried to get my channel taken down. It was a Dutch company because I reviewed, I took apart a switch, but it was a clone and I didn't realize it was a clone of that other company's switch. And they managed to get my channel put on tender hooks momentarily. It was in the early days when it was quite easy to shut people's channels down just by flagging them. But the Chinese companies usually discover that no matter how bad the product is, if I make a review about a product and I say, this is terrible, I mean, the case is nice and so on, they'll still sell loads of them. If I point to an eBay listing and say it's rubbish, 
it'll still sell out. So they're not too bothered. Although many of the Chinese sellers will not ship to the Isle of Man now. So uh, I'm not sure if they're just getting wise to that or it's just because they don't know where it is. There's always a way around that. If one Chinese seller won't ship to Isle of Man, you just search the product and you'll finally find one that does and then you buy it from them instead. I've seen some outrageously inexpensive products that you reviewed, some that just cost pennies, and I can't even believe they could be manufactured for any kind of cost at all, yet alone delivered. Yep, it is extraordinary, but it's that you can't compete with that sort of business. And they are still marking up quite significantly compared to the price you could actually buy them if you were in China. It's very different. One of the devices I saw you take apart was, I think it was like an electrical circuit breaker, would we call them here, circuit breaker switch? Mm Mm-hmm that didn't do anything. There was like... It was the fake circuit breaker. It was connected. Yeah, the fake circuit breaker. It switched. It felt like a circuit breaker, but there was nothing inside. I don't know why they'd make that. It was labeled up as an overcurrent device, but it was completely fake. And in the event of a fault, it would not have tripped, which is quite dire. If there was no secondary protection after that, which there should be, then it could result in quite a significant incident involving cables going on fire or explosions, things like that. You occasionally take products from viewers to take a look at. How do you work with that? People get in touch and ask, uh, they say, I've got this faulty thing or I've got this and I don't know how it works. And they ask if they can send it. I actually get too many of those. So I have to pick and choose when they send them through. Then I credit them and say, this was sent by, say, Tom or something like that. And then I'll reverse engineer or find the fault that was wrong with it and often just fix it. But usually it's in the case of um, some people just say, I've got this faulty thing to think it'd be a great video. If I sent it to you, you fixed it and then posted it back to me. And it's like, no, I don't think so. It's not like that. No, no. Have you designed anything on your own that you put out in any way, shape or form into the markets? Yes. Well, I used to manufacture controllers for the lighting and fairground rides and signage, uh, sort of animation controllers and manufactured those and some specialist lighting effects for quite some time on my website. It's not up at the moment, but uh, I used to sell RGB control kits for controlling LEDs and various other support circuit boards for my website. But these days, because of the way postage has gone, I tend to just post the files now. And if people want some circuit boards, it's cheaper for them to actually just take the files and get a batch of five manufactured and then ship to them from China. It's a bit strange. It's ridiculous. Can you describe that process? So you're saying the prototyping costs have come way down and the flexibility is way up? Absolutely. If you design a circuit board, you can go to one of the online printed circuit board manufacturers in China and you go to their website and all you do is you drop a zip file with all the manufacturing files onto a box on their website and it automatically fills the page in with the dimensions of your circuit board. It shows you a preview of the image of the circuit board And it sets initially at five circuit boards for something stupid like $2 or something like that. Yet, really, because what they do is they add it to a large panel. So one panel is actually like hundreds of people's circuit boards on the one panel. But that includes the screen print, solder resist, printing, the drilling of the holes, everything, and the plating. But the postage adds a fair chunk. Usually the postage costs more than the circuit boards, but it's still so cheap and so fast that it's actually not really viable making your own circuit boards, prototype circuit boards anymore. It's cheaper to design it on the computer, dump it on the website, pay by PayPal, and about a week or so later, a pack comes through the door and that's a set of circuit boards. It's extraordinary. 
not just the boards, not the components themselves. Anyone do the stuffing of the boards? Yes, for very little extra. If you do the full works, if you give them the bill of materials and you do the printed circuit board with the component placement uh, data as well, they'll use pick and place to put surface mount components on it so you can have it fully manufactured and then shipped back for very little more. Very interesting. How much do you dabble in IoT, the Internet of Things? It seems like that might be a logical branch of your thinking. It's not. I Maybe it's just because I'm very old or something <laughs> like that and too wise to this, but the Internet of Things is a hacker's playground. It's just not a secure thing at all. I have no desire to give external control over electronic stuff in my house nor build lots of, I see all these electronic modules being built into the electrical system and you just know they're going to fail or that increases the risk of fire. It's just, a, I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's a novelty, a flash in the pan thing. Some of it will stay, but a lot of it is just making things less reliable in the long run and less secure. So do you have any indoor air quality devices that you run in your house? I do have a plasma cluster, a sharp plasma cluster unit that runs all the time and custom built ionizers, one in my bedroom and others. And I've got one right next to me right now, just precipitating dust out the air. And that precipitation process is, describe to me or for our listeners, the difference between an ionizer and something that would create ozone. Is it the same device and it just at a different electrical voltage level or? Technically speaking, they're the same thing, but an ionizer's primary function is to put an electrostatic charge into the air. Much like, you know, when you walk across a carpet and you get a zap when you touch metalwork, the ionizer does that deliberately, but it puts a negative charge in the air. And the reason it puts the negative charge is that contrary to conventional theory that electricity flows from positive to negative, the electrons actually flow from negative to positive. So an ionizer presents a very high voltage onto a sharp needle. And because the charge is highest at a sharp point, the sharper the better, it imparts, it puts electrons onto the air, it gives them an electrical charge. And once they've taken the charge, like charges repel, the needle's negative, the air's now charged negative, so it tends to fly off and it creates that draft and movement around the ionizer. But now the air is charged negatively with respect to ambient ground. So unlike charges attract, so as the charged air, any dust in it takes on that charge and precipitates out. And that's why ionizers are notorious for making a real mess. Unlike an electrostatic precipitator where you've got the two grids and then the charge grid and then the collection plate that collects all the dust, the ionizers indiscriminately just dissipate. And if you put a piece of clean paper or place it on a white surface, and you leave it for a week and then lift it up, you'll see the outline of the ionizer. It's just very subtly precipitated dust and dirt out of the air onto the surfaces around it. I think a lot of people buy these things, realize what a mess they make, and then turn them off without considering the reason it made the mess was because it was actually taking all those impurities out of the air that you'd have otherwise been breathing in. And because it is electrostatic, ionizers seem to get this bad press that it's possibly because they make a mess. But they can't compete with, a, say, a good HEPA filter. In a sense, they can't in the terms of volume of air flowing through it. But an ionizer will take sub-literally atomic level dirt and dissipate it out the air. And it does so continually and absolutely silently 24-7. So as I still think there's a, I think ionizers are a viable thing, even though they do make a mess. When you say dissipate, it Basically, they precipitate, they come down to a surface that's at the opposite charge. 
the opposite charge is unfortunately ground in the case of the ionizers. Some of them do have uh, positively charged plates and they will preferentially attract the dust to those. But I've never really tested that to see if all the dust goes there or they still make a mess. But one of the things they always used to say is that scaremongering of ozone used to say that ionizers, they produce ozone and then the ionizer manufacturers say, no, they don't. In reality, yes, they do. And that's actually one of the things with these modern products. This is one of the ways they do it. If you go into a very dark room and you look, and it has to be pitch black, and you look at the ionizer, a traditional one with the little sharp needles in it, you'll see that tiny purple dot on the end of each of those needles. And it's producing, with that airflow of charged air, it is producing a very tiny trace of ozone and uh, the other elements that come off the plasma discharge. So um, ionizers, while they claim they don't produce ozone, they do produce ozone, but they do at a trace level that is not harmful, so to speak. It's actually quite beneficial. So you're actually producing plasma. Plasma. At the tip of that needle? Yep. But the power involved is tiny. I can't, the ionizers I've got here that I've made myself, it's literally microamps of power they take. You plug them in, the little neon indicator on the front of the ionizer actually draws like 10 times or more, more power than the ionizer itself. It's just this ambient effect that these things create. It's quite surprising. Do you have any other projects you've built in your home for home use, things that you've done to facilitate with all this experience and tearing things down. You must have seen a, a few gems out there. In what sense you mean for more? Like any kind of controls or going back to your lighting controls or do you live pretty simply? <laughs> I do live pretty simply, but I do have one. I've got a soft spot for lights, custom lights, decorative lights. One of my latest things is 3D printed lamp covers where I take an existing badly designed you know the cheap dollar store lights that are they're LED lamps, but they really grill. They get very hot and they don't last very long. I like uh, opening those, hacking them, modifying some, usually just cutting one resistor out of it, and it changes its power rating down to a fraction of the original power rating. And then putting a 3D printed diamond or crystal shaped cap on it, and you end up with a decorative lamp that's going to last for ages. Nice. You have some more thoughts on the IQ devices? Yes. One of the interesting ones is that the new Calgon iWave, is it? It's the one with the carbon fiber emitters. Now, traditionally, ionizers did use metal pins, but laterally they found out that carbon fiber has effectively, if you looked at it through a microscope, you'd see it's like the tiniest, thinnest possible pins you could actually get. And that benefits uh, ionization. So that new Calgon iWave unit is really unusual. Not just the fact that it uses two of those, and they are charged positive and negative charges, which is very similar to the sharp plasma cluster. They don't say that, but you're thinking people are copying each other. The interesting thing is the little wiper arm, that every so often, it little stepper motor, and it just goes around and it wipes those carbon fiber bristles and just knocks the dust off them. That's interesting. I've not seen that before. I wonder if that'll impact the longevity of the fibers. I wonder how much of an effect it has. On HVAC Overtime, the guys in one of the shows, they were playing about with them. Now, I can't remember if it was while the show was running or before or afterwards, but they were playing about with the units. And Chris showed that there was enough airflow, ionic airflow on that unit between the positive and negative cluster that it was able to make an anemometer 
in the middle of it spin at high speed. They both said that they're supposed to be mounted in ducts. They both said that they could smell the ozone coming off it. So I get the feeling it's, they won't like me saying this, but it's ozone in disguise. But again, because it's in an air duct, it's being diffused and diluted throughout the whole house. And that wiping of the bristles, does that knock off the precipitates? I guess it must. Because the nature of the electrostatic effects, it does. I notice my ionizers that I've put the carbon fiber brushes on, they get little tufts of uh, fluff on the end dust. It doesn't stop them ionizing, but it does create little dots of the dust which sticks onto the end, almost like a flower in a way. The actual, because like charges repel, the strands of the carbon fiber splay apart into... Do you remember the old fiber optic lights, the, the big curved. Yeah, the ones that tufts like waterfalls. Tufts that, yep, and it just fluffed out. It looks like it sprays out like that, and then just because of the way the dust precipitates on it, it's like a flower, and the end of each one of those strands is like little tufts of like dust that it's gathered out the air. It's very strange. Growing like a fractal, kind of. It is. It probably is fractal if you looked up close, because of the way the charge would actually align the specks of dust landing on it. Very, very interesting. So you have a Patreon channel you mentioned. I want to make sure, let people know about that. I do uh, get Patreon support. That's important when you've got a technical channel on YouTube. In the early days of YouTube, every time they changed the rules, they classed technical channels and scientific and engineering channels. They classed them all as dangerous, potentially to kids, because kids might copy what they saw. And they're chilling out now. But in the early days, they used to take down technical channels just because they were perceived as dangerous. So it's one of these things that I wouldn't have YouTube as my main job. It's just, it's nice to have it here, but there's no security as such. Literally someone in another part of the world could click a little X in a little checkbox and your channel could disappear into cyberspace. Wow. Do you have another job besides YouTube? Yes. I still keep on real work. Much less now because I don't really do work on the Isle of Man. I still travel to the UK when we're not in the middle of pandemics, and I still work in the entertainment industry. So I work as a sort of lighting technician on things like the Royal Edinburgh Military Tattoo, and just basically load the show in and then maintain all the power and lighting in it during its run. Very, very cool. So maybe just break off into like a social or health aspect. What's going on with regard to the pandemic where you are? Fortunately, the Isle of Man is fairly isolated. So as soon as the pandemic struck, they closed the borders. All flights stopped. All ferries stopped passenger travel. But the postage still came to Isle of Man. And they had a couple of outbreaks. But when they had the outbreaks, they shut down instantly. They've had what they call circuit breaker lockdowns, where if they see the outbreaks increasing and they can't trace the source of each infection, they call for a circuit breaker lockdown and just instantly it's all masks everywhere. It's like isolation and the queues have the spacing and they restrict the numbers into the shops. And they've done that a couple of times, but right at the moment, I think we're just really coming out the end of the tunnel. But you never really know, do you? You just never know if it's going to take off again. Yeah, we have each state is doing their own thing here. It's both wonderful and frustrating to have 50 different states and all these different rules. We did notice that, but it's kind of interesting as well because you'll be able to compare the figures afterwards and see which state made the correct decision, so to speak. Yes. Or learn from our lessons nearby. You have a worldwide audience, I'd imagine? I do, but it's mostly American and British, but it does cover other countries as well. 
predominantly Germany, I think, is the third biggest, and then random various other European countries in Canada and Australia. It's just kind of mixed, but it is global. Even Chinese people watch the channel as well, which is unusual. So it seems like you're having fun. It's okay. I'll say the bigger the channel gets, the slightly less fun it is because it gets a bit, it's turning into a full-time job. And whereas it used to just be an ambient hobby, but uh, monitoring all the comments and stuff like that for abuse and stuff like that, which just happens. And you feel a slight expectation to produce the ongoing stream of content without missing a beat, so to speak. I try not to take it too seriously. Anyone else following in your footsteps, either with you or another channel building in a similar vein? I have seen other channels that I've accidentally made just by virtue of the fact that when I mounted the camera on a little ledge on a shelf above the bench, and I'd never kept it secret, that's how I film, it seems to have created a sort of style on YouTube of the sort of bench videos. And I see other people doing that, and they experience quite a bit of success as well. So it's obviously a good format. Have you ever gotten injured doing any of these teardowns? And- occasionally cuts, occasionally lifted nails and the odd zap of something like a charged capacitor, and, but nothing really major. I did experimentally, I did a video where I passed increasing amounts of electrical current across my body to see at what point I couldn't let go of electrodes. I'd say that's probably the most foolhardy one that I did. Wow. It was definitely the most painful one I did. Can you describe that a little more? Is it What kind of current level? It went up to 13 milliamps at the end, hand to hand, which is probably not a good idea going across the chest. 13? 13 milliamps. They say at 10 milliamps, that's the point you can't let go. And I could let go at 10 milliamps, but by the time I got to the 13, it was actually getting difficult to let go. I had a foot pedal so I could let go if if things went wrong. The quote unquote dead man switch. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to go further, but it really, having some with a defibrillator would have been needed for if I wanted to go any further with that particular challenge. So I thought it was probably a, a good idea not to go any further. So do you see any future aspirations or outgrowth from what you're doing now? I think it's just going to go on as it is. I do intend to visit various countries around the world and let people know that I'm going to be in the country, so to speak, just to have sort of meetups, because that's one thing people like is the just general meetups where I host, I say, we'll meet at a restaurant or we'll meet at a bar or a cafe and just everybody turns up. Now, speaking of bar. You've done some other things. You've done some things with some beverages. Yes, recently I have. Experimental ones. I've got a water distiller, if that's what you're talking about. Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I tried running a bottle of whiskey through a water distiller just to see if it took all the color out, and it did. It it came out clear. And uh, I also ran Jägermeister through, which is that syrupy liqueur with a sort of herbaceous flavor. And it also came out clear, but it's surprising how many of the flavors go across and just leaves all the sugar behind with not too much flavor in it. Would you say it improved the beverage? The whiskey was interesting. It actually made it much milder tasting as well as making it clear. And what was the reason for that? Uh, None at all. I just uh, decided just (laughs) that's what I'm going to do. I've got two other things to run through. One of them is Guinness to see what happens. And the other one is red wine to turn it into a clear wine and see what it tastes like, see what flavors go across with that. So the process technically is to distill it by releasing the low vapor pressure constituents and then recollecting them? Yes. It's a water distiller. It's designed for purifying water. So it's not like going to be a precision result. It basically just has a heated container with no temperature control. 
it heats it when it boils. The steam then condenses in an air-cooled spiral tube, very similar to a refrigeration evaporator coil. And then it just drips out into the container and you get basically everything but the solids. So in the case of the red wine, I'm I'm expecting the red colour and the tannins to be left behind, but basically the water and the alcohol to go through, perhaps as some of the flavourings. Interesting. I'll find out when I do it. Okay. You will keep us posted on YouTube, I'm sure. Absolutely. Well, very good. I don't want to take up a lot of your time. It is the evening there, but you say you're a night owl. You do a lot of your work at night? I usually go to bed at four o'clock in the morning just because when you've no, got no fixed hours, and particularly working in the entertainment industry, we tend to work in the evenings anyway, so we finish well after midnight. Maybe just a little digression down a path. What was your most fun entertainment project? Oh. Or most interesting, perhaps? The most interesting project? I couldn't honestly say what was the most interesting project. Do you mean... On the channel? No, in the real world. Oh, You're working the theater, stage, and sound and lighting. Yeah. I quite enjoy the Ember Tattoo. It's been interesting watching it evolve. I've done a lot of prop work for television and film. I've done things in the Disney parks, lighting the rides. Those are all kind of interesting, but they're not as glamorous as the image that you get from seeing the stuff. But it's interesting seeing how these organizations work, as well as behind the scenes of the rides. Are you independent? You're your own man, own business? Freelance, but I tend to, in the case of working in the theme parks and stuff like that, it's subcontracting to other companies. When it's the entertainment industry like the Royal Embraer 2, I'm subcontracting to an American company. And it's when I'm doing the props and things like that, I'm working freelance, but with a prop company, but just as a freelance operative. I'm kind of effectively self-employed, but just really working with whoever will have me. I would do want to go back to... I told you before, this is just bouncing around inside my head. This is the way I think. (laughs) No real train of thought here. But go back to the Isle of Man. Describe to us what the Isle of Man is like, climate-wise, population-wise, facilities. It's small. It's most famous for the TT races, if you've heard of them, a motorbike race, which is running the roads, and it's probably one of the most dangerous races in the world. It happens. They've missed it out last year because the coronavirus and this year it's been cancelled as well because they don't want to bring too many people to the island and risk bringing it back on but it's such a violent and dangerous race that that seems to be its appeal and people die in it every single year which is horrific and it's just one of these things that just keeps going on regardless if you do that if you look on youtube for tt races isle of man you'll see the speeds it's one of these things that you can't go and watch it because there's no point because it's just a blur when they pass It's just a death race, quite frankly. But other than that, the Isle of Man is a very mild temperament. It's quite stormy because it is in the middle of the Irish Sea. There's always, in a lot of my videos, you can hear a storm blowing outside, particularly in winter. And it's very rural, a lot of farms and fishing. It's just a traditional little offshore island, really. But what's the population, do you know? I haven't a clue. It's not terribly densely populated, but I don't know what the population is. Okay. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. And You're welcome. Did you have any other points you wanted to cover? I could add a small detail about the ionizers. Sure, please. That the first development of them was done by a Russian scientist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Called Alexander Shusevsky. And he pioneered the idea of the negative charge. And there is a thing, if you look on the internet, for a Shusevsky chandelier. It's basically, it's a huge ornamental chandelier that hangs in the ceiling, but it doesn't light up. It's got a high voltage power supply. It drops down to, and it's just basically art 
is the best way to describe it. It's a framework covered in lots of sharp needles that just charges the air in that room. And in a way, looking back, I think people, as time goes on, will understand that in public spaces, something like this is actually potentially quite useful for avoiding cross-contamination in the air and keeping smells down because it does create that sort of extra knock-on effect. What you can't see up there in the daylight is that those tiny little discharges at the end that are just creating an ambient level of that active components of the air. Interesting. Are you familiar at all with Cositron? It's a product made in the United States. I'm not. It's a commercial product that's an air cleaner that's used in funeral homes, zoos. Oh, right. Okay. To minimize odors. If I'm not mistaken, it it's an ionizer, but a wire ionizer. Okay. Not a, a needlepoint wire ionizer. And then it uses the precipitation aspect to then recirculate the air back through a filter to make the particles either precipitate out or come back around and be trapped in a filter. That does sound like a classic electrostatic precipitator. But I would guess that the corona wire, which used to be a common item in photocopiers, right, that was also using the sharper image ionic breeze, that corona wire will be creating that little element of ozone as well. So it won't just be charging the air for the collection of the dust, but uh, some of that ozone will be going through as well and having that sort of smell removal effect. Fun fact, I worked for Eastman Kodak for five years on photocopier development, and we'd have corona wires to charge the paper to then pick up the toner that was opposite charge and then bring it up to the paper and then fuse it in the fuser. That's a very good example of when you have too much ozone in a building because in the early days in the offices where they had these running all the time, it gave people sore throats and gave them headaches and muzziness and like the inflamed noses because too much ozone absolutely is harmful and those things just indiscriminately produced quite a lot of it. We had to build activated carbon filter, activated charcoal filter, yep. and then run all the effluent from the corona discharge into a filter that was then consumable for the device. Yep. I remember the one for my own early laser printer, which had that same setup. And it was a sort of like a honeycomb sort of black carbon filter that the stuff blew through just to actually take out the excess stuff. Maybe I'm recalling correctly, maybe I'm not. You can check me on this, but they used to roast bananas bananas and banana peels to make the activated carbon. Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. That could just be one of those. I suppose it could be any organic material could be used, I suppose. And it would make sense to use uh, redundant materials, stuff that was going to be skipped otherwise, disposed of. Yeah. Do you happen to know how to spell that Tchevsky chandelier? Oh, right. The Chizhevsky, C-H-I-Z-H-E. V-S-K-Y, Chishevsky. I will put a link to that in the show notes because that may be of interest to some listeners here. Google will probably helpfully correct it no matter what way you type in. <laughs> yes, right. Amazing, Google stuff. Well, cool. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And I'm really happy to see you interacting with us over here stateside more and more. It's good. Always interesting. Feel free to reach out to any of us in this HVAC world if you want some ideas or some challenges or bounce some ideas around. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you, Big Clive, for coming on. Wait, I got to ask you, uh -huh. how big are you? How many meters? Six foot four. I see. I'll, I'll even give you an imperial measurements. Thank you.
You're so kind. <laughs> yeah, and size 16 feet, that's also adapted to the American foot chair. Okay. So I don't fall over much, which is good. <laughs> Very well balanced, man. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, thank you for listening to this episode with Big Clive. If you want to keep up with other things that I find interesting, you'll follow the Building HVAC Science podcast on Facebook by typing Building HVAC Science in the Facebook search bar. Here's a quote for today by Arthur C. Clarke. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. We affiliate with a lot of other trade-related resources and influencers like Brian Orr at the HVAC School and Caleb Salivi there, Zach Ciotta, HVAC Shop Talk, Stephen Rarden, Mike Mayberry, the HVAC Reefer Guy, Tool Pros, Brenton Ridley, Quality HVACR with Zach to Jardins, Service Business Mastery with Tersh, and HVAC Overtime, the folks at HVAC Overtime and HVACR Videos, they've had Big Clive on their live streams a couple of times. You can learn, get some more perspective from him on their videos too. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Building HVAC Science Podcast or want to bring a guest forward to bring on the show, please email me at bill at truetechtools.com. The Building HVAC Science Podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. Take care, everyone, and we hope to bring you another exciting, or at least interesting, or pondersome episode in the near future. Take care. Bye.